Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. And just like that, we have ended up on episode 200 of the Fraudology Podcast. And while I'm honestly not great at celebrating my own milestones, I feel like it's a milestone for all of us, especially if you've listened to every episode. So I asked a good friend and someone who has been very instrumental in making Fraudology a success, especially over the last two years, Lucas Walker. He is a podcast host. He is the producer of Fraudology. I've asked him to come on and interview me, and I'm hoping that you know, I won't be put on the spot too much or, or won't blush too much, but it should be fun. Lucas and I have become good friends through all this, so... Lucas, welcome to Fraudology on this side of the microphone. Thank you. And I think it's going to be fun. It's going to be a little bit of an interview of you. So the tables are turned a little bit. So I don't think it'll be the hot seat. I don't think that's in either of our best interests to, <laughs> yeah, that's true. to do that. But I, I think some fun questions and, and we really we'll see where it goes. We have some some audience questions. So we're going to hit those rapid fire. A lot of good ones. Maybe tease up what we've got. But it's 200 episodes is really no small feat. There's I mean, if you think of most podcasts come out once a week, maybe take, take some hiatuses. We've just been so good about publishing consistently, which is something that I'm very proud of for both of us. It's that's one of the hardest things people ask me all the time. What's the success of, of growing and consistent publishing is just one of those things where you have to want to do it. It's almost like being a stand up comic. And there's that quote from Seth Rogen of I thought I wanted to be a stand up comedian until I met people in L.A. who wanted to be stand up comedians. And it's really you can't just launch a podcast and expect to do 12 episodes when it's going to blow up. You have to really put in the work, find good guests, promote it. It's it's no small feat. And you've been just, just in such a, an amazing job for the last, I think, 170 so episodes because we got connected around 30 episodes in. And yeah, it's been fun. We've got to to hear some great stories, which we'll talk about, maybe share some some stats. Just since we move, moved host, well, well over 100,000 downloads, plus everything else is probably close to 150,000 across everything that's not even touching LinkedIn and and the reach there, which when you stop and think about it, I went to university in a, a town of 3,000 people. And so the total reach is significantly bigger than <laughs> a lot of towns or cities. If you think of getting 100,000 people to show up to any, or 150,000 people to show up to anything, some of the episodes with 1,300 downloads hitting five 600 an episode, if you think of that as uh, an auditorium that's that's a pretty big theater that you're you're selling out a, a couple times a week so by by every metric quantifiable just an absolute success i'm i'm glad we can can share it together and celebrate episode 200 i know that we we wanted to do something for episode 100 but now we now we know when summer hits that's the the next hundredth episode so episode 300 <laughs> who knows what we'll we'll do for that oh but boy hopefully yeah, i'll be in hawaii or something yeah that would be <laughs> that would be the the treat so i l- let me just share something with the audience that i think is is really interesting which is the the top downloaded episode it came out a little bit a year ago. Diana, is it still the same one? It is. Sneaker bots and marketplace malice with, uh, with Diana. Diana Gajic Physic. Yeah. So good good friend of the pod mm-hmm. has done a few episodes, but I think it's just interesting because that's such a popular topic that maybe some some sneakerheads may have found it. I know that we're doing some some cool stuff with Forder and Jenna in that at industry. Snipes. Yeah, at yeah. Snipes so for- yeah, Jenna was just on a couple weeks ago. We talked a little bit about bots, not the whole episode, but definitely, yeah, and I think that one of the reasons why that episode's so popular, the one on sneaker bots, is because right around that time was when a lot of other types of companies were starting to be hit with purchasing bots, which purchasing bots are sneaker bots. So that was actually why we did that episode was because the retailer group that I host, somebody who works for a large, I'll just say big box store, they came to the group and were like, this or these orders that we're getting look weird and we don't exactly know what it is, et cetera. And Diana asked a couple questions and said, oh, those are bots. Like, here's what it is. And I thought, hmm, okay, we need to do an episode about that. 
I knew it would be popular, but not as popular. There's been other episodes that I thought for sure would beat Diana's record <laughs> that haven't yet. But, you know, she set the bar high and not surprisingly, she knows her stuff. So then with that, let me ask you, what have been maybe your your three favorite episodes? If people were, were to go back and, and listen, it could be just really inside stories. It could be just really unique and interesting guests. It could be ones that you just really, really loved or talking about something. What would you say off the top of your head? What were what are sort of the the first ones that that come to mind? It's like making me pick my favorite children, Lucas. That's not fair, especially because I don't want to have any guests be left out. I think every single guest I've had has been really awesome and in their own way. But one of the things, you know, that I think of is when people in my life who are in fraud, you know, what they might want to listen to. That's one of them. The episode with Robert Kerbeck. You know, he's a former Former corporate corporate spy. spy. Yeah. And he also had a lot of very interesting experiences with movie stars in the 80s and 90s. So like he took J-Lo on a date to a Dodgers game. Dame Judi Dench tried to make him her boy toy. He hung out with George Clooney at on the ER set, like just weird stuff, like I mean, crazy stuff like that. That's not common on fraudology. But his background as a corporate spy had so many good thing takeaways for social engineering and companies and their customer service get socially engineered all the time. And he gave some of the best, by far, he gave the best takeaways I've heard about how to prevent social engineering than I've heard from any of like the biggest experts in that. Mm-hmm. Another one was very recently with Asaf Kipnis talking about Facebook and working on the integrity team and the things they had to consider and, and think of. So those are the first two that come to mind. But I mean, I also have, there's so many others, right? Andrew Austin at CarMax and Diana, obviously at JD Sports and Finish Line. And I've had a couple, three or four ex stub hovers who I really enjoy too. So it's hard because most of the, most of the guests are my friends too. So hard to pick. It is. It is. And I didn't mean to go too, too off the, the rails with that one. I know that with, with all the episodes, it's a lot to just think back and, and really do. But I think that that's sort of a good question to get to of, of podcasting in general and and why you like this medium so much because to do 200 episodes it really you have to want to do it it's the audience can tell if you're just i think that's something people who have never hosted for for too long realize is you have to be in the mood and it it does require a lot of a lot of energy so where do you find that i I don't know how how to phrase without being super cheesy but that that motivation that juice to really to do it and really from when you got started to to now if anything's changed there so i guess what you love about it, about hosting the podcast now and, and what got you going and why even start the podcast? So I had a podcast before Fraudology with a co-host. And prior to that, um, I had met you know my co-host at an event. He was a former cyber criminal. And I came home after the conference and told my husband about it. And I said, I'd love to do something him and I because we got on stage and he doesn't really know how to speak to this audience, but he has great information. And so I was finding myself translating And I had always wanted to do a blog, but it was hard to have the dedication for that. And I usually write pretty long form too, no surprise there. So it would be like these massively long articles. And my husband had started listening to a couple of podcasts. I wasn't into them yet. And he said, well, you should do a podcast. And I'm like, what? I'm sure that the barrier to entry is so high. And then I realized, oh no, literally anyone can do it. So we did that for a couple of years. And then the decision was made in the summer of 2022 go our separate ways. And I had zero plans to do my own podcast. I legitimately didn't think I was interesting on my own. And I still don't know if I do, but I'm very grateful that so many people did. And really, the other reason for starting the podcast was because it was August or September of 2020. We were, you know, we hadn't been able to go to our conferences. Yeah, there wasn't a lot of ways to talk to people and just catch up. And also, during those those trying times, like, hey, just what are you doing? How can we share this knowledge? Over the last 10 or 12 years of my career, I've been so fortunate to kind of become the, the hub of the wheel in this industry. And we're so, we have to share information, right? Everybody's seeing different but similar things and we can learn from each other. So every company doesn't, in e-commerce doesn't have to start from scratch. And I was getting all this information about new types of fraud and, you know, new things that I didn't really have a big platform anymore to get it out. 
And I mean, I have LinkedIn and I do enjoy that platform. Just did the episode. The last episode was about using LinkedIn for your professional development when you're a fraud fighter, but it wasn't the same. And I love having conversations with people. The other thing is in knowing so many people in fraud, I sometimes feel selfish because a lot of people don't get to know each other, right? If you don't attend the same conference or if you aren't in the same sector or, you know, if your company doesn't have budget. Or if you're in an or international you just can't pandemic. travel, it's yeah. If you're not always in a major city, it can be hard to get to things. It yeah. can be maybe you have family commitments and you just you can't fly across the country to go to a week long conference. Yeah, and the thing about being a fraud fighter is it can be really lonely. A lot of times, you're especially if you're a leader or you're the only person in your company in charge of it. There's no one else that thinks like you or that cares about the things you do. Not only in like our own career, it, there's just a lot of personality similarities and other things. And so there's something so big about getting to hear each other's experiences and getting to learn from each other and the amount of new friendships and new business partnerships and new employees, all those things that have come from the podcast by having guests who I find interesting. I was having these conversations anyway, most of the time. Mm -hmm. So now it's just letting other people listen in on them. I mean, Clearly, there are things that are not talked about on the public platform, but you can share a lot when you, especially when you're careful and you know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. No, I, I love that. And it's, there's so much of why well, I like podcasts as well, of just being accessible. And just if you're commuting, it kind of can get you into to work mode a little bit to your point of if you're the only one in your department there that's really focused on it, it's, mm -hmm. it can be challenging at times to just kind of keep your eye on the prize of what you're what you're doing versus the company as a whole. And they don't quite understand. Well, yeah. Like and it. there's different things, you know, there's you can't do all the things. So it's nice to hear from, you know, one person how who's figured out how to really communicate to their business why fraud's important or another person who has focused on this area that maybe nobody had thought about. Or I also try one thing that surprised me was I was really just talking to e-commerce fraud prevention people for so mm -hmm. long and because that's really what I know the most about. And so many people in banking fraud started listening. And so I try to keep a diverse amount of topics and some that banking and financial institutions care more about than e-commerce and vice versa. And what's cool is that people love to listen to hear about what fraud is like outside of their sector too. We're just big nerds who love to hear like, wow, what kind of fraud does that kind of company have? Or like, what kind of, what are the issues that this company has? That kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that kind of translates into something we talked about while preparing for this episode was going into, into your journey because you share a lot of resources for people coming up in their career. Maybe, I mean, absolutely. Even if you, if you're a student and you're kind of thinking of that, that career, you're thinking IT or something in that, in that vein, but with fraud, it has to be sort of almost so immediately reactive that you're proactive when you find out that something new is happening. How do you future-proof hmm. yourself for that? Mm -hmm. And if you were to think of traditional schooling for your university degree, maybe even an 18-month college course, a lot changes during that <laughs> time. So what you started learning could already be out of date. So there really is that continuous piece. But you also don't really go to school for for fraud. You have to understand yeah. something overarching mm -hmm. and then go into that. How did you get started in fraud? How did your career begin? I think that's another reason why so many of us are so loyal to this industry. There's a lot of people who, you know, who are really good at fraud. If you're really good at fraud prevention in all the ways and you're looking more at the customer experience and you're looking end to end of the transaction, there's a lot of other industries you can go into, but we just feel so fulfilled by it. And I think the reason for that, that loyalty is because most of us just in having conversations with all my guests, I almost always ask them that question, right? How did you get into it? Because it's different for everyone from one person being in neuroscience to another person being in professional athlete. Like we all come from different areas. For me, I was a single mom and a college dropout and I needed a job. And I had had a little bit of experience at a call center for a payment processor before I got pregnant. And then I had a really difficult pregnancy, so couldn't work for a while. And I had a one and a half year old and I needed uh, some of my friends had started working at this other payment processor in town. 
So I started out the call center, like and most of it was all credit card terminals, downloading credit card terminals over the phone or troubleshooting them. And then I just got really fascinated with the types of calls I was forwarding to the risk department. And I got eventually after a year and a half of a 5 a.m. to 1.30 or 1.30 p.m. shift, which was a nightmare with a child when they have to like wake her up at 3.30 and put her in her crib at her dad's house and the whole thing. I got promoted to the risk department and I was in the right, <laughs> right place at the right time for that job too. And really, that's the way a lot of my career has been because I have been in it for so long. I've grown up with fraud. At the same time fraud's growing mm -hmm. up, I'm growing up too. Yeah, it reminds me of almost trailing the growth of the internet by a few years of the the arch of sort of the growth in the mid 90s. And then a few years later, people realize, oh, there's a lot of vulnerabilities yeah. here. We can just do whatever we... <laughs> it's Yeah, it was the early mid 2000s, right? So end of 2005, beginning of 2006. And because I was the youngest person in the risk department, when I came on, I was told I was being given the Silicon Valley bank portfolio. And I didn't know what that meant, but it was because the older guys that had made this their career and that were in their 40s, they didn't understand how the internet worked. And I, I was on MySpace and stuff. I wasn't, a lot, you know, I mean, this is, a lot, it wasn't that long ago, but it feels like it when you think about how far we've come technology wise. But, you know, one of the first companies, and I know I've mentioned this different parts of this story in, on previous episodes, but one of the companies that had a lot of chargebacks and just was this is in sort of 2006, 2008-ish time. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. It was actually 2006. It was spring. No, 2007. Yeah. 2007, 2008. Actually, the biggest company that was in my Silicon Valley bank portfolio at the time was called Classmates.com. That was never going to go anywhere. Like they were making so much money. They were the cash cow. But there was this smaller social media and there were a ton of other companies, right? In Silicon Valley, obviously, if you didn't know about them up until two months ago, now they've really been the investment bank for so many tech startups and so many big brands. It was Facebook and they were, when I first got trained and I was told, okay, part of your job is to basically man the naughty list. So look at the companies that have chargebacks over 1%. You have to notify them which month they're in, when they're getting extra fines and fees, da, 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 da. They were already in their fourth or fifth month and I had to work with them to reduce their chargebacks without me seeing anything. And what was interesting was the, the most famous phone call was when I had a conversation with Mark as well as his second in command, along with, you know, people at Silicon Valley Bank. Like it was like there were like 10 people on this conference call, but I'm the one running it. And I was a 27 year old. <laughs> yeah. And I was just because I knew this and I said, well, these are obviously fraud. And when you look at these orders, what do they look like to you? And they said, oh, well, clearly advertising fraud. And they could track it back to another country, you know, a country that has had an advertising fraud come from it since as well. And I said, well, do you have anyone looking at these before they go up on the Internet? No, we don't have the manpower. I said, well, at this point and these days now you can have there's so much more technology for photograph recognition and all that other stuff. But well, a AI and chat GPT and that impact yeah. of fraud, that'll be that'll be a year from now for episode 300. Oh, no, it's already happening. In fact, I, I, it's going to I'm going to have to put a little work into that episode, but it's coming because there's a lot actually, it's... but it's already happening. But yeah. So anyway, I said, well, you need to hire someone, even if it's like a college intern. To just look at these ads and not take the money. Because once you take the money, now you're getting the fraud chargebacks. And he famously or infamously told me, I only have two employees in my loft apartment. I can't afford to have anyone look at this. And I was like, well, in two months, we're going to have to go to the visa headquarters and explain to them why you still should be able to accept visa and MasterCard credit cards for online. So we need to figure it out. And um, I trained them and everything. And it's so funny uh, talking to us off. There's thousands of people in the trust and safety team at Facebook. Mm -hmm. Wow. I did not ask for stock. I honestly didn't think that I didn't think it would go anywhere. I got off that phone or one of the few phone calls. I, don't know, I think I probably had four or five phone calls with them at different times. But I got off one of them and I was like, this guy thinks he's going to be the next MySpace. Like, isn't that such a joke? Yeah, so this clearly, guy. Yeah, right. But since then, I've been able to work with a ton of companies when they first started. I didn't mm -hmm. think that Square or Uber or Airbnb would be that successful either. Sorry, guys. Because at the time when I first heard about them, it's like, who wants to have a stranger sleep in their house or who wants to have a stranger ride in their car? Or 
I know all about payment processing. There's going to be so much risk in those microtransactions for those tiny merchants. There's just no way it's going to be sustainable. And now they are. So I've gotten, like I said, I really throughout that. So then after the processor, I then went to the merchant side. I worked for one of the largest online travel companies in the world, ran my own fraud team for a startup that didn't really go up, but was the precursor to Rent the Runway and a lot of other companies that provide rentals, high-end rentals online. Mm. And then I found that my true love is really, I don't know if it's my true love, but my true passion is to be a support player. I've heard, I've had a couple of merchants call me air support before. And that to me is like the biggest compliment in the world. They're on the ground. They're the ones fighting the fight. I'm the support system. So I'm the one, if they don't know what, they've never seen this weird thing before, they ask me and usually I'm like, oh yeah, this other company saw that. And just the way my brain works. I remember so many things and I'm constantly like connecting different people to different, you know, and just all types of things. And really I found that because this industry is so emerging, it's because the lifeblood has to be collaboration and information sharing. So building community and sharing information. That's where it's at. That's where I get my joy. And I'm just so grateful that so many people on the ground trust me and share a lot of information, often without a, you know an NDA in place. But they know mm. that if I share that out, no one's going to know which company told me. What are some of the biggest secrets that you're holding right now? <laughs> I'll tell you that. <laughs> It's funny how as soon as we're recording, I can go into this mode of like, I'm not saying anything. If you, you know that if you asked me that we weren't recording, I might give you one or two, but nah, not nah. usually. I mean, no, usually it's, I, it's like after the headline comes I, out I, and I tell I you I respect about you not, not, enough to not <laughs> ask because I don't need, quite frankly, I don't need to It's know. true. And nor are you in fraud, right? So half the time you're like, you know, with that, you I'm know. like, okay. Like, right. Sounds good. Like, right. But there's been a couple I, of I, them I, that like a headline came out and I was like, I knew about this ahead of time. But for so the most part, that, yeah, I just, I hear it and I just file it away. <laughs> so that kind of segues into something that I want to really talk about. So I appreciate the nice transition and, and easy layup as, as, <laughs> as, a, as a host. But what are the biggest myths about fraud prevention? Because you hear so much and then either you see it starting to come up or, you know, you kind of have that, that initial heads up that this is happening. And maybe it's either that it you see it come to, to light or you see people thinking that they're doing the right thing, but they're not. But so what are your biggest myths when it comes to mm. fraud prevention? And I want to do this twofold. One is at the corporate level and then one for individuals as well, because I think there are two mm. very different sides to to this question. So let's, let's start with the corporate side. Let's start on the, if I'm a business, what are my biggest myths that I typically hear? Well, and I think there's two different groups within the corporate side too, right? There's the business leadership and then there's the people who love this industry. But I think it really depends on the size of the company. We're about to release the fraudology benchmarking report, the first annual. And I, Lucas knows that I have spent the last eight days and probably eight to 10 hours a day writing this report with Shoshana. It has been a labor of love and contention in my house, but there's a lot of really interesting nuggets in there. And one of it really shows clear as day how the biggest companies in the world are the ones who have the best rates. They're the ones who are investing in reducing chargebacks. They're the ones that are investing in increasing their approval rates and their customer experience, where their good customers have no idea that there's a department called the fraud department. They just know they get their order and that. But the Great. bad customers, what? Great point, because, and I've messaged you about this, I've been unable to make a purchase. And I know from hanging out with you <laughs> yeah. that I've been, I'm a false positive in whatever yeah. fraud system they're using, but there's no way to challenge it. And you just assume it's your credit card. You just yeah. assume, oh, I'm not putting it in right or I put it in too many times and that's working. I have no idea. And then you just don't buy the product. Well, and you usually go to the competitor and then you stay with the competitor. So the competitor got your lifetime value. You know, that company that gave you a false positive also lost their customer acquisition costs. All these, they, they lost the opportunity to sell, upsell you more. So it's a huge cost, but only the biggest companies are doing it. Those middle companies, a lot of them see chargebacks as a cost of doing business or even worse. And this is going to probably be a solo episode soon, but I have to find a way to do it without being so ranty. Uh, but let's test out a rant. <laughs> Let Chris know on LinkedIn. Do you want her to go buck wild? <laughs> there are too many 
the biggest myth by far on the corporate side, this is excluding a lot of the people that listen to this podcast, you know, most of them, but is that a fraud tool is a fraud tool. They're all the same. You know, if my payment processor offers me fraud protection or fraud prevention tool, that's the same as anything else. And that it couldn't be further from the truth. It's like bundling your your home alarm system with your internet provider. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And your internet provider is really good at internet, but are they that good at home? No, they just saw another line of revenue. It doesn't mean that they're the best at it. It doesn't mean that they're going to give you everything that, as the companies that focus on it. And truthfully, some of the companies that were at the top of the mountain that were considered the top guys five, 10 years ago have just decided to stop innovating. Well, guess what? Fraudsters haven't and they're getting killed and not just on the chargeback side, but even worse, consumers are using a lot of methods that fraud tools thought were risky just a few years ago. So you know, I don't know how many like what? technology Will podcasts. Be... So how many technology podcasts have you heard where the sponsor is a VPN network? All of them, YouTube channels, yep. everywhere, yeah. everywhere. I would tell you that there's at least three or four that come to my mind right now of fraud prevention companies that see that as risky and consider that fraud, you know, things like that. So what's happening is companies are canceling way more transactions than they need to. Mm -hmm. In this survey that's about to come out, you're going to hear that I can kind of drop a little bit. 20% of the 600, almost 600 companies that answered the survey and the people who answered it were responsible for fraud in their company. They may not have a fraud title, but they're responsible for it. 20% of them are canceling more than 15% of their orders online because they think they're fraud. There is no way that an online company has 15% fraud. There's not. And I, I mean, I could go into why and all that stuff, but so way too many businesses are just saying, oh, this is like anything else, right? If we're looking at two different marketing systems, you know, they both have all the same features. We just need to pick the right one for pricing or the right one for this or that. It, no, it's not at all the case in fraud. And so that's the biggest myth that really frustrates me. I mean, in my consultancy, I talk to a lot of middle-sized companies that don't currently have anyone in fraud or they have an analyst or two who just like me came up through the customer service and are starting to look at these, but nobody's trained that analyst. Nobody's told that analyst, hey, this actually isn't risky or here's how you do it because you can't go to it in college. In fact, right now we don't even have great training for it at the mm -hmm. entry level. It's all on the job. And so that's why, you know, in my consultancy, because in addition to the podcast, I'm working with merchants too. Um, I do a lot of that. You know, I provide that training to their analysts or tell them, hey, you're doing a lot of work that you don't need to do. And you're losing a lot of money. I mean, millions of dollars. I just a couple of years ago, I think my daughter asked me, like, how much how much money have you saved companies? And I was kind of like, um, so I just did back a napkin math just for the first year that I knew about. So not like perpetuity or anything. It was 85 million. And that was a couple of years ago. And that was just the first year that I worked with them. I don't, I don't ask my con former consulting clients to let me know how much money they're saving every year, but you know, could have, should have, would have asked for a 1% of all that, but there's just so much money being left on the table. There's so many things that can be done to be optimized. That's the biggest myth to me. So what about on the personal side? What are consumers doing that they think, and I'm sure there's a million here and we could just rapid fire the top 20, but, and I'm kind of asking for myself because I think that I'm, I'm all right. But from a personal fraud prevention, what should I be, what can I be doing? If someone says like, what are your top couple of things or myths and recommendations for just individuals listening? Oh yeah. So, I mean, I think the standard advice that you know, a lot of us give individuals is to freeze your credit so that if anyone tries to open up credit in your name, you find out about it and they can't, that you can do it and you should be able to do it and you can, but they bury it, do it for free with all three credit bureaus in the US anyway. The biggest one is not using the same password for everything. That's huge, right? So we saw account takeover become a thing Back in 2013, when I worked with the Gamer Safety Alliance, online gaming companies were seeing that so much, but no one else had yet. And since then, with all the breaches targeting username and password, there are so many different, I mean, all I need is your email address and I could actually put it into have I been pwned and see what the passwords are connected to your email address that were breached. Well, if you're using any of those, that's without dark web access. That's what anyone can do. Right. So if you're using any of those on any other website, we can now get access. And if you have a stored credit card or if you have loyalty points on your airline miles or anything else, all that's gone and then being used. And that's huge. And people also think that their passwords are very secure when they use basic things, but they're actually very easy to figure out. 
Yeah. And it's, I don't know, I'm just worried it's been people I know who should know better in air quotation marks. Is it's if you're a victim, you're a victim. Yeah. But it just goes to show that we're we're all much more vulnerable than we realize. And just taking some basic precautions to be at least a couple steps removed from easy, easy access so you have some warning, I think is probably pretty, pretty important. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I mean, most of the people who listen to the podcast are very aware of those things, right? Because they're seeing on the other end what happens when people don't. But we also, there's a lot of other scams and other things. I mean, consumers are getting targeted for scams even more than ever before. I can't remember the stat mm-hmm. that came out from the Identity Theft Resource Center, but is it the direct- budget per hack one? No, uh, this is that was- I found very interesting was essentially the budget per account takeover had doubled or quadrupled. Oh, the yeah. fraudsters war chest with PPP, the loan fraud, just increased so they could spend more. And after I heard that. I started noticing more spammy messages. They just, yep. it's like anyone else. They have, and now they have more money for buying data. They oh, yeah. have, they can yeah. attempt more passwords at once. They just have a bigger war chest. Yeah. The U.S. government's COVID relief funds really were startup funds for bad actors. It was, you know, giving them, it was like venture capital for fraud. And it really started up the fraud as a service economy, which is just blows my mind every time I go down those rabbit holes, every time i part of some of the cybercrime groups I'm on the other side, where they're talking about easy companies to hit and how they do it and everything else. And you can pay somebody $15 to send someone 500 spammy emails at the same time that you use their email to purchase something so that that way they don't get their, they don't get the confirmation email, right? Like there's so, that's just one tiny thing. Mm -hmm. There's so many different things. So now it's more like a gig economy rather than one person who had to know how to do every single thing and they're sharing it more, right? I've always known that working together and sharing information across with fraud fighters is critical. But they're really beating us right now. So that's why, you know, the podcast is one layer. I know I'm excited for this next year. You and I are working on some ways to build out the Fraudology community more and be able to give Fraudology listeners and other people in my network the ability to connect with each other more in different ways. Uh, we'll, sometimes we'll this keep, feels... We get, we, oh, yeah. We, we, we got to keep that under wraps. I'm that's just top te- secret. Just, well, I'm not saying any specific. Top secret. Top yeah. secret. It's top secret. Chris. I kept all you the said other earlier secrets. how good you were at keeping secrets, and then you just reveal <laughs> a secret in front of me. Ultimate disrespect. It's called a tease, Lucas. But you know, I think it's. In, I know that it's something that listeners have been asking for a lot lately, and it's needed. So that's why I say that, right? It's important. Sometimes I feel like the podcast is just a one-way conversation. I mean, I'm so I'm lucky to get to know to already know or get to know my listeners but still I, you know there's opportunities let, let for me, other conversations speaking of which let me do a shameless plug for you and then we'll pause and take a sponsor ad read okay but yeah if you've loved the podcast gratitude or feedback is a form of gratitude let chris know send her a message comment on a, on a post of of this episode or leave a review on apple and spotify they make Cruz's day when i send them to her we were debating of whether or not we should talk about haters and negative reviews. The answer is overwhelmingly no. If you if you have anything, don't read your reviews. Have a friend kind of filter <laughs> them them out. The but, funny thing is, though, Lucas, is that this industry is so small that the you know two or is. three yes, the two or three negative reviews that we have that I have on Apple, like. I actually didn't know about one of them, but when I mentioned something else to you that someone had been saying about me, you were like, oh, I know the guy that wrote that review. And I was like, oh, you wrote a review too. So this industry is so small, like I know who they are. And I really think there's legitimately only five or six people in the industry that I genuinely have like serious issues with, like on an integrity level with. And so of course, but like, I'm grateful that for the most part, the the five stars drown that one out, right? Or those, you know, one or two. But yeah, I mean, this industry is so small. I know who it is and it doesn't bother me, right? Like my grandma used to tell me, just paddle your own canoe. Don't worry about anyone else. So with that, I do want to to touch on, we talked about a lot of, a lot of celebrations, a lot of fun moments and highlights. But what about sort of lowlights? Were there times where you wanted to to give up and just, just pack it in? Were there some challenging times? What about the, maybe the, the darker days over the last couple hundred episodes? <laughs> you know the answer to this. While you think about that, let me tell a, a really funny story. Oh boy, okay. We're recording this episode on Sunday night because we've had 
three technical <laughs> difficulties already. On we, three different we had, days. Yeah, we have three recordings that ended up all over the cutting room floor and across the probably nearly thousand episodes I've worked on at this point, if not more. I, I've never seen anything like this, but if it wasn't the 200th episode special, you know what? Maybe maybe we finally met. I think the universe back. was trying to tell us not to do this, but but we don't. We, right? well, we don't we give up. On. But but yeah, were there any any lowlights or moments and and to flip it back sort of what what made you want to keep keep on producing and keep on shipping episodes? Well, yeah. I mean, of course there are. You mentioned at the beginning, like how important it is to you to have continual episodes and ha- always ship the episodes at this right the same time on the same days. That has been something that's been very difficult for me over the last couple of years. I I don't talk about this much because I don't want to be a poster child for anything, but like I have adult ADHD, which like runs my life. And before I knew what that was, I didn't know how much it impacts everything. I just thought, oh, it means you can't pay attention. Oh, no, there's so much more. And partially that ADHD is what makes me so good at front fighting. I did like an unofficial LinkedIn survey one day after talking with Jared Price, who's been on the podcast before about this. And 67% of the people on the, and I think it was over 100 people answered it, are fraud fighters who either have been diagnosed or know that if they went to a doctor, they would be. So it's a common thing. But I also have depression and anxiety and uh, chronic illness that I've had which is actually the reason why I started my consultancy almost nine years ago. So there's a lot of things like that that just feel like they're getting in my way. And it's hard for me in balancing the podcast and and the things that are needed with running a business too. And it's been really amazing the last year and a half that working with you, Lucas, we now have incredible sponsors. And I love the fact that you are in agreement with me that it's important to really vet and understand, know our par- our partners and not just take money from anyone. And so that makes it easier for me to do it. And to, you know, I have no problem reading ad reads for the companies that have been our sponsors because I know that they're good products and I talk to their users all the time who love them too. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's another question. It just, it was a short answer of were there any sponsors or people we chose not to work with? And and the (laughs) answer is yes, lots. There's there's a laundry list. We spent a a lot of time betting on it. I just have a ton of respect for you for we're doing that crazy and it's it's a small industry and word does travel and i think that's a good time to segue into some rapid fire we have a, a lot of fun audience questions i know that you want to add in a couple more yeah just for yeah pieces there but but yeah we have some audience questions as well so let's let's take it home and then hit do some some rapid fire from the the audience yeah so i was just gonna add on to that and say that the thing that keeps me going is the listeners and i that probably sounds really cheesy it's the sponsors obviously right because whenever i'm contractually obligated to do anything i want to hit it out of the park i i just wrote a client the other day saying like i don't feel like i'm giving you as much value as i want to and they're like are you kidding me i'm like i i have to always you know exceed the expectations So it's that, you know, it's the fact that because of working with good sponsors and wanting to make sure that the train's leaving the station every time, like you say, but it's also, I often remember like sometimes there's been a couple of times, like when I had COVID or when I was babysitting my friend's kids and it was only supposed to be for 24 hours and it turned into seven days where the last thing I want to do at 10 o'clock at night is hop on a microphone and talk. But then I'm remembering the specific people that I know that listen to the podcast the day it comes out on their morning run or on their morning commute or when they take the kids to school or whatever. And because I know that they listen right when it comes out, that's what keeps me like, okay, it's it's got to be to the editor within this much time. And it's not just those people, obviously, but that's what makes me want to do it on time. And then just in general, I've gotten more messages from people than I can really count or keep track of saying how much this podcast has meant to them and how they they feel seen. And it yes, it's giving them great information for their career, but it's also building that community that's so important for us to keep going because let's be honest, fighting fraud doesn't exactly help our faith in humanity. And so hearing from other people who are like us and who are keeping up the good fight and doing it even when it's hard, that's what helps us get through those times. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate your dedication to getting to getting it done because i know it's not easy and it's we've talked about this just so much and and even on this episode of if you've never hosted a a podcast you don't know how much work it is to really 
turn up the personality when you just you don't want to because life's mm-hmm. coming at you mm-hmm. and it's hard it's really really hard yeah it's on on the best of days without everything anything else going on well and you know and i'll be i mean i'll be vulnerable because i think you're thinking about this too there's been there were a couple of months over the last you know year or two where my my child was having a lot of really big challenges and i'm very grateful to you for understanding everything and i understand what I've agreed to and I'll get it done and I do and I'm grateful for that but you have given me a lot of grace as well knowing that not every day was easy but at the same time I really enjoy this outlet I enjoy being able to feel like I'm making an impact or at least at the bare minimum fulfilling my responsibility there have been some episodes where I felt like I just kind of threw it together and then the crazy thing is those are usually the ones that people reach out to me about and I'm like Mm -hmm. oh really because like, I wasn't sure a, anyone wanted to hear me talk about that. I was just trying to like find something because I've got a lot going on in my world right now. And like, I'm just trying to get something out. So yeah, not every day has been perfect by any means. In fact, there's probably been more harder days than the good ones. But also knowing that you're giving people something to listen to and, and make their day. It's that's fulfilling in itself. It is very nice to make something that people want and enjoy and consume. It's there's really no feeling like that. Yeah. And you know what I think they want right now, Chris? Maybe I think answers they want some answers. rapid fire. They want answers to their questions that they submitted and were <laughs> promised answers to. Right, turn. So we we had over 5,000 questions submitted. You're so full of it. <laughs> so we picked the best ones. There was some overlap, but we picked the, the best ones and, and merged a, a bunch. But I love this question. And it, it's the first one. But who's the, your dream guest or a dream episode? So just, I guess, one of each of it. And you can have anyone on the pod, Chris, anyone in the world who is alive at this. You get anyone to come on. I'm trying to think. I mean, I know exactly who I want. I just, I, you made it sound like it's got to be somebody really big, but. I am a big fan of Kara Swisher, and I have Mm -hmm. been since she started Recode. And she and I know a lot about the same companies, but in different ways. And I listen to her podcast, Pivot, with Scott Gallagher quite often. I would love to just like geek out with her off the microphone about the two different sides of the coin that we know about so many technology companies, but more so on the mic. I mean, and I wouldn't, don't worry, guys, I won't tell you your secrets if that ever happens, but on the mic, just talking about, you know, tech and everything else and all that. But there's, I've had so many good guests. There's not a ton of people in fraud. I mean, but that's, she's the first person that comes to my mind because I really have a lot of respect for her in the technology space. And she has really been talking more so in the last year about the importance of trust and safety, mostly on content moderation and inauthentic behavior and all of that. But they all go hand in hand. It's all whether you're in trust and safety and or you're just looking at payment fraud, we're all fighting the same people and it's all nefarious. They're all trying to use your your company's platforms for their own uses and not for yours. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I love that answer. I love it. I'm just, I'm just there's like a couple other, you know, I also am a big fan of um, Smashing Security with Graham Cooley and oh my gosh, Carol Thoreau. Carol Thoreau. I can always never say that. So they'd be fun to have on the podcast too, but I have not asked. <laughs> so let's talk about the the response from, from listeners. I know you get a lot of LinkedIn messages, a lot of messages across everywhere. But what about fan mail? Like, any odd requests in person? What's what have been some of those those moments been like? I will never forget the person who first asked me for a selfie in person after I had a podcast. She knows who she is. I, mm-hmm. I reminded her of that the other day, or actually in March when we saw each other in Vegas. That was so weird to me. It was like, let's take a selfie and not because like, you know, we're longest friends, but she said, I can't wait to show my team that I met you. And I'm like, what? Like, I'm not a big deal. What are you talking about? I've had one or two requests for autographs. I think they were kidding. But my response is, what, so you can fake my signature for identity theft? Because like, <laughs> I, I can't take it seriously. So I just you, you make need a it a stamp joke. for entertainment purposes only. <laughs> right. Non-binding stamp. I know, right? I've had some funny run-ins at in-person conferences where people are like, I told my wife that I got to meet you. And I said, you know, the girl that I make you listen to every time you get in my car, I got to meet her. And he said, you make your wife listen to me every time she gets in your car. Like, that's not very nice of you. But yeah, you know, people's kids who are fascinated by fraudology, babies who apparently can fall asleep to my voice. Um, I have, I totally get that because I have a podcast I listen to and I can't listen to it while I'm driving because I listen to it while I'm sleeping so much. I have, so I have one of those too, but I'm like, gosh, am I that boring? But I'm like, as long as you're not falling asleep, I guess it's good. But yeah, there's also, you know, an unofficial fraudology running club. 
that's that that blows my mind because for me if I, when i am doing exercise i need like a beat i yep. need music to a beat but i need something really aggressive yeah and heavy. yeah me too in fact i just had to ask my husband to turn down his aggressive and heavy music while he was cycling in his pain yeah, turn down the pantera leaf <laughs> it was it was a mix of that and eminem and all kinds of crazy stuff but uh yeah they as he was yeah cycling in the house but the running club is fascinating to me i'm like who in the world runs to front but okay there's like at least 10 or 15 people that do, if not more, but those are just the people I hear from. So this last Merchant Risk Council, I spoke for a um, private event to talk a little bit about the Fraudology Benchmarking Survey. Mm -hmm. And there were four women that stayed behind and waited in line to talk to me. And I think two or three of them all said that they were fangirls of me. And I just think that's crazy because I'm just a big dork who loves fraud. I'm not anything special. I, In fact, that was what kept me off the mic. Like, that's what has kept me honestly like not doing as many big things as I want to do is because I don't want to make it about me. I just want to be the person who like is the conduit to information. I don't want it to be about Carice. I want it to be about the fraud community. But it's still very special and it has helped me with the imposter syndrome a little bit. But I also like to turn it around on them because they're just as interesting. I love it. And you told me the you highlighted on one of the stories I was hoping you would about the the kid falling asleep in the car. Which I, I just, I love that. Um, yeah, there's one person who's like baby, if they were like legitimately, the baby couldn't sleep at night, they would put the baby in their car and play fraudology and drive around. That's a and little you, bonkers. You mentioned, the baby mentioned some partners, but what about non-fraud fighters? Do you just hear from people who just find it interesting and they, they kind of stumbled upon the pod and, and listened to it or anything? Yeah, I've heard from a few people like that. Like that I didn't know before, you know, that listen to it or people who are like, well, I was in a connected industry sort of and didn't know this was an industry, things like that. What's weirder to me is the people in my life. So like my husband and my daughter, I don't know if they've ever listened to an entire episode and I'm fine with that. Like it doesn't bother me at all. They get to hear enough about fraud. And in a way, I think they really appreciate the fact that I have a podcast because I'm not talking about it all the time. I'm doing it on the microphone. But I... When we moved last year across the state, I had to get like new doctors and things like that for my my chronic illness and my chiropractor as well as my one of my main doctors for all the physical health stuff. They both asked me what I do. And I usually just say I'm a consultant, but then I don't know, every once in a while it comes up and I'm not like, I don't know if I say I'm a podcaster, but I'll say like, oh, and I have a podcast or hey, my interview went long. Sorry, I was late. Like something like that. I don't drop it often. I don't think I'm a big deal. But my doctor is well my chiropractor keeps wanting to come on and I'm like does that mean that you're a fraud like so I give him a hard time about that but my doctor she asked me about it and I was like oh whenever anyone asks I'm like oh you know what it's super nerdy it's niche you know in my profession I don't ever expect regular people to listen to it but they ask the name and I'll tell them my (laughs) doctor is obsessed with it in fact she's probably hearing it now and I love her so much for it in fact you know she's a doctor who specializes in, you know, helping people with chronic pain and chronic illness. And I'll come in and she'll be like, that one episode that you had, I have questions about that. Or, oh, somebody in my life said that they keep getting their credit card stolen over and over again. And I told them I listened to that episode where you talked about the the mod 10 and the math equation. And I told them they have to get, I gave them all the tips. And I was like, wow, okay. So now ever since she started listening to Fraudology, her assistant knows that she has to come in and give us the five-minute warning because usually until the five-minute warning, my doctor's been talking to me about the podcast and not about my health. That's so random to me. And so it's flattering, but also so funny. But also I feel like there's a Larry David bit in there where you just <laughs> you just want the the medical time, but you also love the flattery. Well, I it's not the flattery as much not as the flattery, it is. But it's, it's I love nice she's interesting and yeah, she's that's interested what's interested. in it. It's, oh, it's like, wasn't well, you can't tell them no. head? Well, right. Yeah. But actually, yeah, there was one, one particular point where I actually thought that I was like, this could be some kind of a skit just because I was like, actually, I did have things this time I wanted to talk about that I didn't ask you about. But yeah, it's I think that this is a world where only so many of us know about it. I don't think that that's you know, the way it should be. I think that there is a huge opportunity to bridge the gap from what we know here to the consumer side. I don't think I'm the person to do it, but I know that it's needed. But if, you know, a few consumers here and there, whether they know me personally or not, find it fascinating and are willing to follow along. And even if they don't know everything that we're talking about, then I think that's great. Yeah, I think so too. And it's, it's, 
just nice. And we talked a little bit about this on the, the personal side as well of crossing out of this industry to something that really does impact all of us. Even yeah. if you're trying to make a purchase on a website and it just won't go through, it's interesting to be kind of get a glimpse into this world that, that impacts you, even if you're not directly, directly into it. Well, yeah. And most people in my life, even if I just went to high school with them and they were, we are friends on Facebook or something, if they see a suspicious website or if they think they got their credit card stolen, they're usually reaching out to me first, which anyone in fraud can relate to that. Uh, once people figure out what you do, when I was first in fraud, like my mom used to tell people that I caught bad guys on the internet. She's like, I don't know how she just does it. You know, like it wasn't well known, right? Like not until the last five years. Now it's so common for people to get their credit card stolen or, you know, mm -hmm. identity theft. It happens. Right. But before that, it wasn't cool. It wasn't there also wasn't VC funding and all the other attention we've had in this industry. But and some of that's been for the good. Some of it hasn't. But it's we've come a long way. And I'm not going to say it's good. Right. I think all of us would be OK not having job security if that meant that there was no more cyber crime. But it's, that's never going to happen. That's true. It's three things are, are certain death taxes and fraud. It's yep. Yeah, you plug one hole, they'll find another one. But that's yep. also what we love, right? It's the thrill of the game. It's the thrill of the hunt. It's the cat and mouse game. And we'll forever be finding those mice. Yeah. And I think that's a good place to to wrap it up. If you want to, to stay ahead of the curve, make sure you've subscribed. And if you've enjoyed any episodes like Chris, no, Chris, where can people get in touch with you? Where can people reach out? Where can they find you? What, what platform is best if for some reason... They've listened, they've subscribed, they've left a review, but they haven't connected with you on LinkedIn. Where do you want people to connect with you? On LinkedIn. <laughs> it's really the only social media platform that I use. I said that on the last episode for, yeah, mostly because of time factor. But yeah, LinkedIn's the best way. I'll be rolling out a new website for my consultancy, hopefully in the next couple of months. But yeah, that's the best place to reach yeah. me. And I... I do tell people if I don't reply and you need you needed a reply, like hit me back up in a couple of days. It's not personal, but I do try hard to stay on top of those and really appreciate it. Awesome. Well, Chris, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for letting me interview you. I'm glad we could share some some stories. I think that we can maybe do do a second episode of of this, but I've I really enjoyed it. I hope the listeners did too. Yeah, yeah, me too, for sure. Thanks, Lucas, and happy 200 episodes. Yeah, here's to <laughs> 200 more, hopefully. Oh, I don't know if I'm up for that. I'm kidding. I totally <laughs> am. I'm here for it. I've got the energy. <laughs> All right, I will talk to you guys on Thursday. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.